First of all, uh, my name is Brad Hobbletel. I've been on staff for 20 years. Uh, Great Miami area, a couple other places now. In Cincinnati, this is Ryan Black, uh, Greater Cincinnati Urban Young Life Area Director. Been on staff for like two years ish. So we're going to combine for 22, which is pretty impressive. No one else can say that. Um, no! <laughs> I like messing with my good friend Ryan. Uh, hey, this is, we kind of got given this seminar, and, uh, uh, and it's very close to our hearts, so we were pretty excited about doing it, but uh, it, it became, as we thought about it, and um, it became huge, okay, so our hope in this, like, we honestly could, with a lot of stuff we had, we could go for hours, um, but we won't, um, thankfully, but we want you guys to know, like, so hopefully there's a couple of things in here that kind of to you. There's a couple things that you kind of hear. Um, grab hold of those. Make it a conversation in your uh, club. Make it a conversation in your area. Um, you know, a few years ago, before you were made for this, uh, Young Life's slogan was, every kid, everywhere for eternity, which sounds great, right? And we'd all be like, yeah, every kid, everywhere for eternity, right? In theory, it's great. And practicality, in practicality, it, it's hard. You know, when you think about young life traditionally, and you go back to Rayburn in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 80s, and you think of this traditional idea of young life and being strong in, in these suburban areas with, the, with, um, with money and all these different things, and as we've kind of continued to grow into harder places, into the urban core, into rural areas, into multicultural areas, it, it, it's gotten tougher, and it's tougher, and it's because of, uh, for a lot of reasons. I loved what Bishop Mark said last night. It, I mean, it was hard to hear, um, and he, when he talked about the tension that he felt a year ago, being here and realizing that, you know, Young Life in Dayton had this unbelievable 30-year rich history, and yet hadn't made to the urban core. And that's not a Dayton story. That's a Cincinnati story. That's our story. That's a Columbus story. That's a Cleveland story. It's a Young Life story everywhere. It's a Chicago story. It's an L.A. story. You know, as, as we have continued and we have kind of started to embrace this idea of ministry of the urban core, and when I would say embrace this idea of really being the body of Christ um, in Young Life, uh, we found ourselves going to harder places. And so I want to talk about, when we think about young life, oh, we'll skip that part, because we'll hit that in here. Um, so I want to turn to this idea of marginalized, because I think we have, we have uh, one of the words we decided to use, effectively ministering to the marginalized, whether economically or multiculturally or whatever, in our, in our communities. This idea of marginalized, looked it up in the uh, dictionary, uh, is peripheral, right? Peripheral or insignificant. And I think in a lot of things, if we're, if we're honest, like when we have, we kind of have our focus, and here's, you know, our main focus is right here, and there's a lot of things in the periphery. And it kind of, that's kind of how I would describe how Young Life has been in Cincinnati, in the Buckeye region, and Dayton, you know, like, we had this focus, you know, in Cincinnati, it was everything around 275 was the focus, and then the periphery was the urban core. Okay? Same to be said in other cities. You know, so we have this idea, or maybe even in our areas, we're like, here's the focus, but there's a school over here, we don't know exactly what to do with it. 
You know, but I'd say it's, it becomes even more personal as we look at our clubs. And we look at our own ministries. Because there are marginalized kids, right? There's marginalized kids in our schools. There's marginalized, and I think one of the biggest things that marginalizes kids, the two biggest things that we've kind of talked about, whether it's a multicultural situation and in a minority situation, or it's economics. You know, um, there's, a, there's a read, we have a recommended reading list on the flip side of this, and one of the articles is a guy, Jim Dyson, who was a young life staff guy for years and years and years, uh, did urban work with Young Life, was a groundbreaker um, for Young Life in the, in the urban core, and uh, Jim Dyson wrote a great little article you can find on the Young Life website, you can search for it, um, and it'll pop up, and it's called um, The Me- Message to the Kids in the Back of the Line. You know, message to kids that are marginalized. I, I watch my son. I have, a, I have two kids, they're nine, they'll be almost ten. And I watch my son, and he is a front-of-the-line kid. Like, it's baseball practice. I say, go line up, take ground balls. He's in the front of the line. If I'm watching him at school, it's, you know, like, I, we've trained him. Go to the front of the line, sit in the front of the classroom, do this, be in the front, be in the front, be in the front, be in the front. And here's what's crazy. I'll watch my kid's class. And it's crazy. A teacher will say, line up. I do fields. It's one of the great things. Go on staff. I, get, I go on field trips. I'm like the only dad. It's like me and all the moms. And I'll have a great time. But uh, like I'm, I'm like the only dad there at the field trip. And uh, I'll watch. They'll say, line up. And I guarantee every time, they are in the same order. It's Henry and his buddies sprinting to the front. And you have the other kids going. And here's what I'm going to say about that. That, is ha- that happens in our society. Okay, there are, we have, there's front line, but we have kids in our periphery. It's the back of the line. You know, and, and we are called to minister to them. And a lot of times, that is our kids who are in poverty. Here, here's, a, here's a quick thing. Um, who knows what gentrification is? Anybody gentrification? Uh, it's like the re- renewal of an urban core of like a really run-down neighborhood. Sure. Absolutely. It's happening in Over the Rhine in Cincinnati. It's becoming like Over the Rhine used to be the heart of the heart of the hood, you know, in Cincinnati. And now they're building all these unbelievable, them, these great uh, condos and houses and people are moving in. And what happens when the rich move into the city? What happens? The poor's moving out. So the poor's moving out to the suburbs, that first outer, outer ring, right? And so as the poor moves out to the suburbs, people from the suburbs are going where? Where are they going? They might go, fur- they're going further out, right? They're going out to rural areas or they're moving back in the city, you know? And so this is changing the dynamics of our schools right in front of our eyes. I've been, I graduated from Corn High School in 1991. Okay, go cards. Um, Caleb's mad. Um, <laughs> And I remember 1991, it was the fall, fall of 1990, going to the regional cross-country meet at Voice of America Park in Westchester. Anybody from Westchester in here? Or whereabouts? Yeah, kind of Kelly is. Okay, so we're going to Voice of America, and we're driving out, and we're just driving through fields. And we're just making fun. The whole time we're like, where is this place? This is in the sticks. We go past, we're on this road, 747. And we go by, and all of a sudden, there's a Kroger in the middle of nowhere on 747. And we're like, what, who would build a Kroger in the middle of nowhere? 
And then we get to the park. There's nothing. We go by Lakota High School, which is cross, was across from a dairy farm. You know, there's cows in front. And we're just making fun of it because we were cool, you know, Korean city kids, you know, uh, thought we were tough. And they were dumb rural kids. Now, go to Westchester now. Drive down 747 or wait in line as you drive down 747 because of all the traffic, all the housing developments, all these different things. Westchester was rural. It is now a suburb. Coleraine was a suburb, and now there's a lot of urban influence. Okay? This is ha it's happening all of it. So our schools are changing. I'll use Coleraine as an example. I used it in the first one. It's what I know. Coleraine High School is a school of about 2,000 people. 38% of the students at Coleraine High School are on free or reduced lunch. Okay, you take that percentage out, about 800, 900 kids walk those, school, walk those halls every day. They're on free or reduced lunch, living in the poverty line. Right? And so here we are doing traditional young life, doing typical young life, and yet 800 kids are economically disadvantaged. And we see this all over the place. And that, all kind of stat, you know, um, New Miami, we're gonna, you're going to hear from um, Beth. Jacob's in the house. You're going to hear from Beth a little bit later. New Miami, the school in our area, it's a peripheral school. No one even knows that it exists. Not even people who live five minutes from it. They have a 95% free and reduced lunch rate. It's, it's a, a weird community. A, a lot of our schools, Fairfield High School in our area, is 27, 28%. Fairfield's a school of 4,000 kids. So you take a quarter of those, more than a quarter, it's over 1,000 kids walk the hallways at school or economic disadvantaged. You know, so this, this idea of working with kids in poverty is real for us. And I got, anybody from Upper Arlington, this is my favorite stat. Yes. The zero percent on free or reduced lunch, which I don't believe. They're just, well, they won't, I don't know, so I think. But, uh, what's that? We, I lead in Upper Arlington and I have an apartment. We took a kid in who went to Northland High School. Yeah. It's that kid came out when he turned 18. Like the only kid in school that right. free lunch. There he is. But, uh, <laughs> you know, but I'm just sitting there going, like, I, I ran stats for almost every school in our region. Um, but uh, it's amazing. Uh, the state average is 47%. State average of, of kids. Does anybody know what the uh, young life requirement for an urban high school is? My leaders can't answer. Anybody know? 50%. 50%. So if you're close to that, close to an urban high school. Yeah, young life would consider, even if it's rural, they would call it multicultural, urban, whatever. Yeah, yeah. You know, if it's 50% because of the issue is poverty in, in that situation. Um, so Middle, Middletown High School, which is close to us, is 60%. Hamilton High School, area, 58%. Um, so this, this idea of poverty is real, um, and we know that. And so kids in poverty, gentrification, all this stuff taking place, you know, um, and here's what I want to say. This every kid for everywhere, everywhere for eternity. That young life um, is that, but it, it is not always accessible or accommodating for every kid. Like when we think about who young life is accessible and accommodating for. And this is just, guys, just, this is real conversation, okay? You know, like, you know, it, it should make it a little uncomfortable, you know, but it, it is. It's accessible and accommodating. We, we kind of threw that out, but we're going to kind of do this thing called a SWOT analysis uh, anyone ever do that before? Know what SWOT analysis is? Yeah, a couple friends in the back have done it. Okay, here's what we're, we're going to assess, and we're going to try to keep it a little tighter than we did last time. We just got we were really hammering some things. 
But strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. Okay, this is what this is. And this is just good stuff to think about. And we'll just name like four on each and move on. We're going to start with the negatives. Okay, so here's, we'll, we'll start with uh, weaknesses. Okay, so here's what I want you to think about. Um, and this is internal for who we are in young life. Think about what we do and who we are in young life. What are uh, inherent weaknesses or disadvantages to who we are in young life, to ministering to marginalized uh, kids in poverty, um, multicultural situations? Yeah. I think just number of volunteers like that. Volunteer numbers, huge. Great thought. What else? Yep. Camp costs. It's always it's going to be the first or second every time we talk about it. it is, it's huge, right? Camp costs. Yeah. For our area, we have a lot of high schoolers that can't come unless they bring their little siblings. So you can have like little two-year-olds running around or they can't go. Yeah, so family dynamic for sure. Let's go back here and then here. Uh, transportation. Transportation, yes. I know plenty of, plenty of places where club will be as big as how many seats are in the vans, right? Okay, right here. And then the type of leader administering to the kids. Type of leaders. How so, expand on that a little bit. Well, I feel like a lot of times when you have people that come from communities like that, it takes a special kind of person that's been in that community for a while or like is familiar with it to be able to relate to those kids. Yeah, absolutely. Here's, here's the thing, and it's hard, and I understand that. It's like, you know, we all come out of, you know, every, almost, I'd say what, 95% of Young Life leaders, we come out of Young Life, right? And so we have this experience that was ours. And so when we think about leading, it's like, that's what we're envisioning. You know, I went to this school, and I'm going to go back to this. And so it's like, so if I went here, and all of a sudden, I'm going to go... Here, I don't. What do I have to offer here? You know, so that's a great thought. Uh, one more. Anybody, was, was there a hand or we'll move? Right, let's move. Okay, let's come down here to threats. These are external things. Okay, this is not internal about who we are in young life. This is external things about the environment, elements in the environment that would cause trouble to how we would do young life here. What are some thoughts? What's that? Racial differences, non-unification. Yeah. What, what else? Um, not supportive administrations. Okay. Non-supportive administrations. What else? Absolutely. Safety. That came up in the last one too. Danger. Who here? Who here has ever had a gun at a young life event? There's got to be a few of us. I have. You know, like, there's safety, real stuff. Yeah, guns. Yeah, guns. You get a badge. <laughs> uh, what, what else? Yeah, we need that sweet basement, but there's nothing in that we could destroy and throw everything on the wall. Safety right? goes along with that too, like the safety of the space. Yeah, absolutely. So space. What else? What are threats? Um, lack of parent support. Parent support. 
I want you to get this, because this is a real one that we deal with. But I want to, sometimes we have to, I think sometimes we can say lack of parent support is, um, we see this um, in these communities all the time. And I think we have to be careful because we have to realize that is not because there are parents that don't care. It's so situational. And we have to realize that. And sometimes we might have to think about, okay, we maybe have to maybe uh, over acquiesce to parents who, who, who want to help us out. And maybe it's going to be, it's going to look totally different than parent support at Lakota. You know, but it's going to be different because these parents do care, but they also might be working two jobs. They also might, they also are most likely the sole economic provider in that family. You know, and so that's a real struggle. So don't, don't read that as, you know, there's uncaring parents in the urban poor or in poverty. They're not. They love their kids. Um, it's just, it's different. There was a, um, won't go there. Uh, another one. Another threat. One more threat. Any threats? Any threats? Yeah. I'm trying to word this right, but just the whole psychological poverty. Generational poverty. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Tough to break. Generational sin. Anything generational is tough to break. Sin, poverty. All those things. Okay. Now let's look at these. Let's go. uh, Let's go obstacles. Or obstacles. Opportunities. Opportunities. Because... Oh, obstacles are really opportunities. But let's go opportunities. Um, so elements in the environment that work to our advantage in working with kids in poverty or marginalized kids. Yeah. Parents are really trusting. What's that? Go ahead. Parents are really trusting. Okay. Okay. Trusty parents. It's just like really easy to see and conceive of brokenness and sin and like really Absolutely. Brokenness. There, another one of the recommend, recommended readings, uh, it's the, the message to the kids in the back of the line, talks a lot about that in our messages. How, I mean, I've, minister, I've, ministered, I've done Young Life in a lot of different places. I can think of times where I, uh, it, it, you're working with kids and you're trying to convince them of their brokenness. Oh, you're broken. You're broken. Come on. You know, look at all these things going on. You're broken. It's like, well, I tell you what, you know, ministering to kids in poverty, you know, like, their brokenness is, is there. You don't have to, uh, you do not have to convince them of that. That's huge. Yeah. yeah. Along with that, they desire something greater and want to, like, know that that can be real. Like, there can be real love. There can be, like, real love in their lives. So, like, they have that desire. Okay. Right. Yeah. Availability. Availability. Cars, you can't go yeah. They can't right. join this country. Yeah. yeah. That's huge. Absolutely. Yeah, they'll go there, there, there. I'm thinking more of the idea of how um, leaders, just specifically like volunteers in the community, can lead it. So I know at the high school I'm at, they didn't care. They didn't do a background check or anything. They're just like, oh yeah, come on, help out with the track team. It's my third season there, and I still haven't done a background check. Ah, you're good. Yeah. Yeah, there are opportunities to help in the school for sure. Yeah. Uh, also, just like a lot of the kids in these areas, like may not always be from the most stable homes, so a lot of them just like crave like attention from someone who they may not be getting that, and so it's really easy that we can give that to them. 
they're, they're looking for someone to invest in them. Absolutely. Uh, let's move to strengths. Okay, so these are the things that are internal with Young Life and who we are um, that lead to, um, would lead us to an advantage in ministry. So about, about what we do that leads to an advantage in ministering to these, these folks. Yeah. We have a knowledge of culture right now, so I think that that is a strength because we can fit in with them. Like, oh, yeah, did you see that vine or something stupid like that? And they're like, oh, yeah. So, like, I don't know, we can relate to them. Okay. Yeah, we, we are a relatable ministry for sure. What else? What else in hearing about who we are in young life that makes us advantageous to ministering to disadvantaged kids? Yeah, Kelly. Okay, so available resources. Absolutely, we have we have something to offer them. We have we have things, right? What else? Yeah. Absolutely. It's absolutely adaptable. Yes, hand in the back. We like, have what they're looking for. What's that? Like, we have what they're looking for. Yes. Well, and, there we go. <laughs> right. Yes, yeah. yeah. absolutely. I think Gimlet brings a lot of unity um, to different types of people just because, like, when you have Jesus in common, like, it doesn't really matter, like, what you do in your free time, and, like, it doesn't matter what your hobbies are. And I just feel like you can learn to love each other in that way. So, like, you can bring yeah. people from different cultures together like that. That's awesome. Yeah. Which is exactly, to me, is so attractive to non-believers, you know, to, to folks who are looking for it. All right, one more thing on strengths. Yeah. Um, it's like, we're also really focused on just, like, meeting kids where they're at. And so it's not like, oh, you have to come to this thing. Or, like, you have to be here, like, teach stuff necessarily always have those opportunities and like they're just either sort of sacrificial and want to go to where kids are. Yeah. Yeah, and that's huge. Going where kids are. Here, here's the beauty, and I'll tie this up here in a second and we'll move on to some things. Um, the incarnation. Like there are some very real um, real uh, things that impact us because of the incarnation. Because Jesus came to earth. That God came to earth and he put himself in our place. And you think about Jesus, born in the poverty, a marginalized person um, racially, a marginalized person because of his economic status, a marginalized person because the weirdness of society of viewing his mother and father and that whole, you know, you know, uh, them, obviously we know of the... <laughs> People would have thought, you know, Mary and Joseph were not, you know, that they're having sex before marriage and that whole thing, right? Now what are you going there? But, um, sorry. No, that's fine. So the incarnation, Jesus comes. Jesus did not come as King Herod. He could have came as King Herod. He could have came as King on high, right? He didn't. He came as, he came as God with skin on. And so we replicate the incarnation and we go. And I'd say it's the biggest strength with us, for us, because we go with Jesus, and we go to these places, and we follow his example. When we go into these hard places, we're just following what Jesus did. When, we are, when Jesus' heart for the poor, 
And Ryan's going to touch it up in a little bit. I mean, we are just doing what Jesus did, what he's called us to do. You know, to bridge the chasm. You know, in our life with Christ, we are called to die to ourselves constantly. Right? And when we die, we can unify. When we die to ourselves, we can unify with other folks. And so that, that sometimes is owning our own stuff. And I would say this, if we, and Ryan, I'll touch on it. I'll, I'll let you touch on that later. Term biases. Yep. But, but know this. Um, as we look at this, there, there are some obstacles, and there are some weaknesses to how we do. We talked about in the first seminar, camp cost is a huge weakness. And somebody said a huge strength of ours is fall weekend. They're like, it's our summer camp. Right? Like, you know, and I think we, we get so wrapped up in the like, oh, and I want you to hear this. Like, you are not defined by your camp numbers. As Pat Goodman, you know, there's not a scorecard saying, Oh, oh you know that that's all the kids you that's all the kids you could take to that seven hundred dollar camp when you were ministering in a school that had sixty kids that were below the poverty line? Sixty percent of the kids below the poverty line? And you only took, you know, that's not that's not on our scorecard. It is about it is about the Great Commission, making disciples. And we have things like Fall Weekend, and we have club that meets in their community and all these different things. It's about sharing the gospel. And it's about Ryan right now. Yay. Uh, and all this is great, right? We, and if you, if you lead at a school um, that's, under, that's underprivileged, um, impoverished, whatever you want to call it, um, racially divided, uh, whatever it may be, you can run through these SWOT analyses until you're blue in the face. That's what I got caught into a lot when I was first leading. And, and that, I just got really frustrated because, like, oh, Young Life sucks at this. It's great at this. And just kind of kept going back and forth. What we really have to do is build a really solid biblical foundation for why it matters to minister to a diverse people group. Why it matters to go after the marginalized. Why it matters to go after uh, a diverse club. Why it matters to go after teen moms. Why it matters to go after kids with special needs. Um, so I want you to, if, if, you, if you're a visual person and you want to close your eyes, that's fine. But if uh, you, um, you can go ahead and do that and I'll tell this story. Uh, imagine that if you were, whatever school you're leading at, if it's incredibly racially divided, live in that world right now. If it's incredibly economically divided, live in that world. If it's not really that segregated, just think about a popular kid and a nerdy kid. And imagine that you walk into the campaigners and you see, in my case, I'll tell it from my perspective at Newport High School about eight years ago, you walk into campaigners and you see an African-American guy and a white guy embrace each other with true, genuine love. And the world tells them that they shouldn't be in the same room. They should be in different rooms. They shouldn't even be friends. Okay, And that's kind of the scene. You're seeing genuine love by people who, who, are, who the world is trying to segregate. As much as people are clamoring for it, no. I don't, I don't buy it. I think they want to keep them separate because Satan has a stronghold there. He does. So that, that, that's kind of the scene there. And I want you to hold on to that and we'll come back to that at the end. So why do we smile when we think about that? Why do we smile when we see these, these people who the world tries to keep apart? Why do we see them come together? And why does it make us so happy? Why does it, why does it show incredible power? 
You know, I was um, one of the first couple kids I met at Newport High School about eight years ago. Was a guy named Derek, and he was a crazy kid that handed out business cards to girls. Like he was so official. He was the he was the ball boy for the girls' soccer team, the captain of the football team. He was just he was everywhere. He was Mr. Newport. And um, God love him, he never, he never did grab a hold of Jesus. Um, but, he, but he understood young life, he understood the social stuff of it, so I just ran with him, you know. I was, okay, if, he, if he's excited about young life, well, I'm just going to run with him and hope that he grabs a hold of this um, and just really runs after Jesus rather than young life. And he never did. Um, but I had a really interesting conversation with him his junior year of high school. And this one, we were really struggling. We were having about 60 kids come to this little house that looked like a barn. The, the address was like 721 and a half. Really? Is that a thing? It was in Bellevue, Kentucky. Um, and we were having like 60 kids come over and we, all we did was a skit. We had pizza and, you know, whatever. And we just did a club talk. And that was it. Like, it was very simple. And there was just some tension at club and it, like, we kind of like plateaued at 60. And it was like, and we were kind of talking about it and he was like, well, I have an idea. Why don't you have the white kids on Monday and the black kids on Tuesday and the Latino kids on Wednesdays? And then they'll all get really excited and go to separate clubs, and you'll like have 60 on each night. Great thought for a high school kid that didn't know Jesus. But isn't that perpetuating a problem? Isn't that perpetuating what we don't want to happen? What power of a gospel do we proclaim if it only to homogeneous friend groups and to homogeneous racial divide. That's a load of bull. It shows no power of the gospel if it cannot unify people, if it cannot cross racial barriers. Now, don't hear me say, don't hear me say that if you have 100% Caucasian and they're all filthy rich and they all can, out of their piggy bank, pay for a summer camp, that you're doing something wrong because that's not what I'm saying either. There are... Kids are meeting the Lord, and they're growing in the Word, and that's great. It, every sinner is saved by grace the same way. So don't hear what I'm not saying. Uh, can I get a volunteer to read a passage real fast? Thanks, Alyssa. Revelation 7, 9 through 12. And I just want to look at this because I believe that as we look at our current mission and our current um, cultural construct and how we are supposed to attack this satanic stronghold, we have to look at what the end goal of God is for his kids, for his people, and for his church. Let's see you there. Yeah, nice and loud. 9 through 12. Revelation 7, 9 through 12. Right. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory, and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Um, so what? So this is the Apostle John. This is who the quote the disciple that Jesus loved. He wrote the Gospel of John, and this is him, um, kind of through dream, entering into heaven and getting a glimpse of heaven. And by the grace of God, and the Holy Spirit inspired him to write about it. And we get to see what heaven is going to be like. 
So what do you see in this? What brings you life in this scripture? All nations and languages. How, and I want to challenge you, how do you see that? Okay, if you put yourself in John's, and in, 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 in you're standing right next to God, and you're kind of looking out at the crowd, how do you see that? Do you see the African tribes over here, and the Latinos here, and the, and the English people here, and young life here? I hope not. We would have ran to the front, because that's what huh? we do. We, we would have been to the front, <laughs> clamoring for sweet home Alabama. <laughs> I just think it's important that they were all wearing white robes, and they were all, like, they were all the same, yet they were all, like, the different tribes, but they were all wearing white robes, all in the palm, so they were all the same. All under the umbrella of Christ, but not ignoring their differences. Their differences are distinct, and God celebrates those differences. We're not assimilating and becoming all one big blob of Christ. Right? That's not the way God sees it. He, he, he knitted us in our mother's wombs, every single one of us, all of our intricacies. In, in all of the, has anybody ever read the book Heaven by Randy Alcorn? Holy crap, it's so good. It is so good. I don't, am I allowed to say that? I'm being recorded. Um, but it's so good, and it, and it just goes into this beautiful explanation about what heaven is going to look like and how it's going to change the way you do life now. And it really does a great job of, of explaining how different cultures and different peoples will come together and be under the, and be the bride of Christ. But at the same time, what they bring in their differences better shows the glory of God. And that is something to be celebrated. You know, they, they, in that passage, they're, they're kind of mentioned, they're mentioned nine times in unison but one time with distinctions. So I think it's more important that they're the bride of Christ, right? But not to be ignored. I say that and I draw that past the scripture because I think, and, and, and I truly believe this, that for us to really understand God's mission and how we're supposed to approach this thing called evangelism, relational, incarnational, whatever, we have to see what the end goal is. And if we see what the end goal is, why wouldn't we start it now? Why wouldn't we aggressively pursue that now? Please, I, I challenge you to, to look at the, at the, at the, um, the recommended reading list and, and tackle some of those. Ephraim Smith's post-white and post-black church. Unbelievable. Um, yeah, so moving forward to Jesus. You know, I just said uh, the, the Church of Christ really reflects God and who He is. Well, what better reflects God than us? Jesus. Jesus. Jesus is the perfect. Jesus is the perfect example of God. He, he expresses God in every facet perfectly as a man. He is the picture of Him. And He comes to a completely different people group in us. Right to understand us, to know us, you know. So I want to draw you just to a to a story that we all know so well, right? John four, the woman at the well. Um, does anybody know why this would have been so bizarre for this situation to be happening? Does anybody know? Yeah, because Jews didn't associate with Samaritans. They didn't associate with Samaritans. Men didn't talk to women. 
Men did not talk to women. That's the bigger one. Um, Samaritans were the, um, they, were, they, were, they were very racially mixed. They, they joined pagan, um, pagan rituals and gods with Judaism, and they really perverted um, the calling of God on, on Jews. And they were just this super outcasted people. Not only that, but any like rebels or criminals, the Samaritans would willingly accept them. So a good Jew would have avoided uh, Samaria like leprosy. You know, and, and it's not, he didn't go, Jesus didn't go out of his way to go to Samaria, but he could have gone out, gone out of his way like any good Jew around Samaria. So he was going from Jerusalem and back to Galilee in the story. And Samaria is kind of this region right here. A direct route would have cut right on the edge of that region. Kind of like more, more towards the center. Any good Jew would have just kind of went right around and they would have went to Galilee and that would have been that. And, but I just think there is something to be said about Jesus' strategy here. No good Jew would have went there, but he intentionally does. He intentionally sits down and has a conversation. And what's the result? What's the result here? What's the woman go do? She goes back to town. She goes back to town. She's the first missionary. Have you guys ever thought about that way? She is the first missionary. Oh, Samaritan woman. Oh, God. The scandal. That would have been a great TV show, you know? Um, and I just think there is something to be said, and I challenge you guys to search the scriptures. I wish, we, I, wish I had more time to really dive into how much Jesus loved bringing up the urban poor. And the rural poor, because this, these people are on the margins. And bringing these people up and setting them up to succeed and to proclaim the gospel. <laughs> um, now, going back to the beginning, um, definitely feel like I rushed through that. So, if you guys have any questions afterwards, go ahead. Um, now, going back to the beginning. Now, bring that, bring that picture of campaigners back into your mind. And, you, and, and, I'll, and I'll, just speak, I'll speak from my perspective. In a racially divided school like Newport nine years ago. It's changed a lot, but it was super racially divided then. And I walk in, and uh, a young man, uh, a young African-American man and a young Caucasian man are embracing each other with true, genuine love, not just a facade. And I happen to have two kids with me who have never been to Young Life before. How much of a t-ball is that for me to smack out of the park because these two guys are coming and they're expecting kind of just the same kids doing the same thing, like the same soccer bros doing the same handshakes and they just happen to be hearing about Jesus. But what they see is something they know shouldn't be happening. Right? They see this and they're, they're like, what gives? What is... Ryan, why, why are they doing what I know shouldn't be being done? How easy is that for us to say, I'll tell you, I'll tell you what the common denominator is. I'll tell you what the ultimate unifier is. It's this guy that we're going to talk about in tonight's lesson. I hope that you can take it for all it's worth. And that's my charge to you guys. And I know a lot, probably the majority of the people that are in this room are probably pursuing kids in the urban poor of different racial breakdowns, and you, and you know this. And I, 
And I just hope that that these two scriptures and this word, it fills, it, it puts a firm foundation as to why it's important. It shows the gospel in a different light. Um, and so, I want to, yeah. Yep. You know, a couple things. I love the Revelation 7 passage. It's one of my favorites. When you go on and look at it and say, that, who are these people? And so these are the ones who came through the Great Tribulation. Just a little side note. When you think about that, think about our society today. Is the tribu- you know, there is tribulation that is close to us. Look, it doesn't take long to look at the things that are going on. There are, um, there are divides. We've seen stuff over the past few months, racially, economically, all these different things. There is tribulation. And as a body of Christ, we need to press into that. As a body of Christ, we have a role in that. You know, another thing, uh, I think it's really interesting with Revelation 7, that's not just our ending point, the way God's kingdom looks. It's our beginning point, too. It's our beginning point and our ending point. And uh, Ephraim Smith, in his book, Post-Black, Post-White Church, says, uh, this is a stat, which is crazy, 13% of churches in the U.S. would be considered multi-ethnic. 13, so 13 out of 100. Think about how many churches. And here's, their definition, here's the definition of multi-ethnic, which I think is a joke, which means that there's 80% of one race, Right? So 20%, if you have 20% of a minority, or 20% total minority, um, that would be considered multi-ethnic. I meant to feel very multi-ethnic. So um, we are, you know, as a Christian body, we are probably most divided, we are probably most segregated on Sundays. You know, and that's something that we need to, we need to take account as a body of Christ moving forward. Um, two things, we're going to move to practical things. Uh, two things... I love, I love all the stuff in my area. I have two favorite things. Um, my two favorite things that we do in our area has nothing to do with anything I do. I love Young Lives. It's like my favorite. Um, and uh, we have an incredible team of volunteers who've been leading Young Lives and, and doing things with uh, girls and their babies, and it's so awesome. I got to be Santa Claus at Young Lives Club this year. It's the highlight of my year. It was awesome. Uh, and, and that the second thing is New Miami High School. Um, and New Miami High School, like I said before, uh, Beth's going to come share, share in here in a minute. Um, it's a blip of a high school. It's a high school that people five, ten minutes away have no idea it exists. Um, it's just this little community, and uh, we have a team of leaders there who are absolutely incredible, and they are led by Beth Jacob and Adam Jacob. And, uh, and Beth is here in the back of the room. She's going to come up and just share a little bit of their experience, um, her experience in leading. And, uh, yeah, just Beth. Yeah, Beth! Woo! And Brad's getting me all teary-eyed back here. Who are you going to come up? I didn't know I was your favorite. That's great. You are. Um, probably in some sense, but I'm just kidding. Uh, I have some notes on my phone because I need that. Um, so I guess i just tell you guys a little bit about um, what it's like for me and my husband to lead in New Miami. I grew up in Fairfield, uh, which is 15 minutes from New Miami, and like you said, I didn't know it was there. <laughs> like, I, I didn't know New Miami was a place. Um, and so it's very small, it's very um, rural, um, well, I don't 
of this. Is it urban or rural? I don't really know. It's all white kids, but they're super poor. Um, so it's whatever hard. you want to label that as, that's what it is. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a river town. It's, it's, it's weird. It's Visit. weird. Visit. Yeah, drive through it. It'll take you like 17 seconds. Um, but, uh, okay, so... Um, gosh, I feel like I don't really... I feel extremely humbled to be up here. Like, you guys all should be up here. You know what I mean? Like, I do the same thing as you. I'm not any different than you. Um, and so... Opportunities like this, I'm always like, I don't know what to say. Like, I just do what you guys do. Keep doing it. You know, like I don't know. I just so I'm encouraged by um, by the fact that I get to be up here and um, and just know that I'm just I'm the same as you. I, hopefully, I can offer a little bit to you, but I um, I'm just humbled. So um, a little bit about New Miami. Um, we've been leading there for seven years now. We started it. Um, I went to Miami. Adam did as well. We graduated and um, decided to start Young Life at New Miami because he had a job there. And um, there was no Young Life. And he was teaching there, and we were like, we got we got to start something here because it was just um, so so many hurting kids there. So we've been there for the past seven years, um, and we've seen a lot of what you might call success and what you might call just like, this sucks. You know, it's like it's, it's hard at times. It's really good at times. Um, there have been valedictorians that have graduated that like are now working at McDonald's. Like it's not like like the the idea of success there is like like every kid I know is like yeah I'm gonna graduate and I'm gonna go off to college. A lot of them end up Miami Hamilton. A lot of them are done by second semester and they're like working at McDonald's or they're dealing drugs or they're um, having kids or they're in jail. Like it's I don't know. It's like we. The, the school system's kind of not really set up to have them be successful, but um, that's besides the point. Um, but anyway, that's kind of what we deal with. And um, right now, what we're doing, uh, just I don't know if you guys are in the same spot, um, but one thing that we kind of came to was just we felt like the traditional Young Life cycle was um, just not working for us. Uh, we had, you know... 20-ish kids coming around the club, and it was like 15, and it was like 10, we're like, we don't, we just felt like it wasn't like the, you know, um, we felt like it wasn't what we, we should branch out of like the, the regular Young Life model, so um, what we're doing right now is, um, we're basically having what we call club painters, we don't call it that because nobody knows what club is, nobody knows what key painters is, so we don't call it that to the kids, but um, we have kids come over to our house, play a game, like, I don't know, over the mountain, four on a couch, whatever. We hang out with them, we play a game, um, and then uh, one of us gives a talk, and then we basically have cabin time with guys and girls right afterwards. Um, we have discussion questions, and um, last semester we did that, and it's just been really, really cool because um, it's just such a great opportunity like for kids to not stop it, like, oh yeah, that's really cool and then move on to their phone or, like, McDonald's or sleep or whatever, you know? And so it's been a really cool opportunity to, um, to just kind of see depth in relationships. So I guess for you guys, like, in a practical note, if you feel like club is just like, this isn't working for us, like, it's just not, we feel like it's dwindling or we feel like no disciples are being made, like, that's the point, right? So evaluate your club, like, are, you, are disciples being made and if they're not, maybe change something. Um, because we, we felt like it just wasn't, like, the, the practical system wasn't really working. So 
Um, that's what we've been, been doing, and it's been really fun. Um, and so that's, that's one thing. Uh, another thing is, I don't know if you guys struggle with scholarship money for camp, um, but we raise like 70% of our campership um, is either through like them selling JTMs or like us doing work days, but like raising our own money. Um, so uh, one thing that we're talking about doing is like, and I guess this would have to be like, talk to your area about this, I don't know if you can, but like, let's, like our camp price this year is like $700. And so to a kid who has never like, $700 might as well be 5,000, you know? Um, and I know like there's, you guys in the room are like, yep, that's where we're at, you know? Um, and so what we're thinking about doing is like, because we raised 70% of the scholarship money that pay anyway, we're thinking about saying, hey, camp's like 400 bucks, you know? And so if every kid could get there, you know, through fundraising or um, just like money from their parents or whatever from now to June, then we would be in such a better spot as opposed to like, I just feel like it's such a hard number when a kid sees a camp flyer and they're like, $700, I'm never gonna get there. And we're like, it's okay, fundraise, it's okay. And they're like, how do we make 50 bucks to make JTMs? You know what I mean? So um, I, I don't know, maybe that could be something you guys think about as far as like, maybe you could, Change your camp price. If you're, if you're raising a scholarship anyway, it's all relative, right? Like, whether your camp price is $400. Am I allowed to say that? I'm not on staff, so I can't just be like, so you change your camp price. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I, oh, whatever. I don't really know what I'm supposed to do here. Um, <laughs> um, let's see. A couple stories about us, okay? Um, one of the first kids my husband met as a teacher, um, his name is Alden, and he went to camp with us, and he passed away, like, uh, two or three years ago. Um, and we had kind of lost touch with him. He was, like, um, he met Christ and was, like, more involved with his church and stuff uh, when he passed away. I think it was a car accident, and, and, you know, we didn't, we weren't necessarily, like, still really involved in his life. But when we are there, one thing we realized, like, because he was at the hub of, like, we started, when we started Young Life, like, um, he was there, and just, like, so many kids that we met, we're at that funeral. We looked around, and um, like I feel like every kid there who had heard about Jesus was through Young Life, and it was just it was super cool um, to see that we like you have impact, you know. And regardless of whether you see your kids really meet Christ and like follow Him for a long time, um, just be encouraged. Like you, um, you never know what God is doing, and years down the road, like things can happen, you know, so, I don't know, I guess I just want to encourage you guys, because I get frustrated with just, like, not being able to see results, you know, um, coming from, a, like, a quote-unquote successful high school young life, where they're, like, at Fairfield, where there's, like, Bible studies, and, and a bunch of campaigner kids, and clubs huge, and all this stuff, you have that same mindset when you go into a small school, and you're like, well, why isn't this working, you know, um, but that's just not how God always works, you know, and so uh, be patient with kids, um, and know that uh, God's always at work, and he is in so much more pursuit of them than we are, uh, and he continues to pursue after they graduate, you know, and so if you lose touch with them, it's not like, oh, all of this lost, God is there, and he's not absent ever from that, like, he's always pursuing, so be encouraged by that. Um, okay, let's see, you got another couple things I'll share here with you. Um, I guess this kind of goes along with it. Sorry, I'm real scattered. I was just like, oh, here's some things I can talk about. Uh, lastly, okay, um, 
we, Adam and I, in the last couple of years, have really um, come to understand the importance of church involvement, especially for kids who are not going to go to college and be in the Young Life community, you know? Because it's like, you all they have is campaigners. If they're following Christ in high school, all they have is campaigners. And then when they graduate, and you're like, good luck, kid, at Miami Hamilton for a couple years. Like, what are they going to do, you know? And so I feel the longer I lead, the more I see, like, how important longevity is, like, you, as a, co- like, whether you're a college leader, out of college, whatever, take your kids to church. Like, teach them what it means to be a member of a church. Um, because that's, that's where they're going to continue to follow Christ. Like, that's where God's going to continue to grow them um, up into who he wants them to be. Um, so anyway, we're, like, we're still struggling with that. It's so hard for, for our kids to get, like, well, i got a young life, so why do I need to go to church? So it is a struggle. But that's just something that's really been on our hearts. Like, we want to, like, consistently pursue kids, like, not to just go to club, but, like, hey, come to church with me, too. Hey, come to our community group, like, um, that kind of stuff. So I would encourage you to do that. Last thing I want to leave with you guys um, is just just a quick thought on success. I kind of already touched on this. But with New Miami, we've seen like, across the board, different levels of success. Like, at one point, we literally had 30% of the student population at our club. Like, it was, like, 40, I mean, it was a very small school, okay, but it's, like, 40, 50 kids at club, and we're, like, yeah, we've made it. This is awesome. Um, And we've also been to a point where, like, literally eight kids are at club, and two of them is a sixth grader and a baby. Like, it's, like, like we've been in all spots, you know, and, um, or multiple babies, like, you know, it's like, we, we run young lives, we run wildlife, it's all in one at New Miami, you know, it's just like, whoever wants to come, you can come. Um, but we've, we've seen it all, and, and one thing I've learned from leading at New Miami is that, like, well, success, like, regardless of where you lead, whether you're at a super rich school, super poor school, whatever, like, success should never be gauged by performance and results, ever, okay? Um, so that's really the only thing I hope you hear out of me babbling up here is that, like, regardless of, of, of performance and results, like, I just hope you guys are encouraged to go hard, you know, because it's not about how many kids you bring, it's not about... Um, what kind of kids are there? Like, it, this, success is, like, this is, okay, this is how success is gauged. I wrote it down. Hang on. Because I, I don't want to mess it up. Okay. Our success is gauged in growing in our understanding of Christ's love for us as we go out. Okay? Like, that's, like, the, the biggest thing for me as I've led for however many years. It's like, man, I know Christ so much better. I'm, like, I understand Christ's love. And we get to figure that out as we go out and kids reject us. And, like, it's hard and, like, all this stuff, you know? So, anyway, hope you guys get that, that um, your success is, is already won in Christ. So, that's all I got. Okay. All right, I've got some practical applications, and we might have we might have time for questions if you guys have any. Um, so this is just a kind of a list of some really basic stuff that I see as instrumental in um, in our ministry, especially to the to, to kids in poverty. Um, first and foremost, uh, we all have biases, whether they're motivated by racial prejudices or economic prejudices, or whatever, 
we all have them. Just deal with them. Don't act like uh, you don't have them. I won't act like I have them. Uh, a very painful conversation I had with a couple guys a few months ago, right after the, um, the announcement of that they weren't going to indict the officer in, uh, in, in Ferguson. Whether, whatever you may believe uh, is indifferent at this point. Um, but a very hard conversation that I had for three hours with two high school kids at Buffalo Wild Wings. And it wasn't even really a conversation. It was them just kind of spouting off to me about what in the world is going through their mind when this kind of a thing is happening in the country and what kind of a message that sends to the black community. I would just say, um, and this kind of leads into my next one, um, but just always have your listening ears on. You don't always have to tell your opinion. It, sometimes it's a lot better just to listen. Um, the, and that leading into that is kind of, your la if you lack proximity to these folks, you will lack empathy for their situations. And I'm not just talking, and I'm not just talking about geographical proximity. Like you may, you may live in the city or you may live um, in, in, a, in a small small rural town. But if you don't have, if you don't have proximity relationally to people, and I'm talking about outside of high school kids, adults who, who can also speak into this situation. If you lack that proximity, you'll never understand. You just won't. Uh, one of the best, one of the um, best conversations I had was with my white pastor who, of a well, an incredibly multi-ethnic church in Cincinnati, um, kind of leading the charge in the country, actually. And uh, he directed me to uh, an article that's listed on your green sheet uh, about white privilege and what that means in our country. And um, my proximity to him and. People in the church uh, drew me to really want to understand that more. So I would just challenge you guys to lean into that stuff. Uh, your teaching style, um, it, it will probably change when you're dealing with uh, kids in poverty. Uh, an example that I always run, uh, run to in this is that your typical suburban club, you will kind of build up linearly, linearly um, to, your, to your climax and your club talk, right? I was here, and I ended up here. Blam, that's the climax of the story. You guys know what I'm talking about? That's how people talk. That's not how kids in poverty process stuff. That's not how they process stories. Okay, so if we're going here, a kid in poverty will process if the circle, if the point is in the middle, this is how they get there. And it's a spiral going out. And it's like a lot of side comments and jokes and all these crazy, and like you have no idea how you got to the point of the story. But it did. Um, and I would just 